When Jenny and I were really, really, really young, we lived two doors down from our best friends. We had a hallway apartment, they had a hallway apartment, and we made really good couple friends because I was in graduate school and the wife of our couple friend was in graduate school. Jenny worked as a public school teacher and then Andrew, the husband of the couple friend, he worked at the nuclear plant journal. And Andrew would get so bored that he would spend his afternoons thinking up dinners that he could make. And so that first year, uh, Andrew just made dinner for all of us. But we really knew them and they really knew us. And we got a front row seat to things that uh, challenged us. For example, Jenny and I, when we would encounter conflict, when we would encounter an area of disagreement, like maybe how to keep the kitchen, we would just go at it. Like we would fight. Like, I mean, she would shout, I would shout. Now, our friends Andrew and Don, they were so different. Like when they had conflict, they pretended as though nothing had ever happened and they would say nothing. And so we, we got a front row seat to that. But in those early days of being married, one thing was true about Max and Jenny Vanderpool. We had a tribe. There, was a, there were people walking with Jesus who were our age and who were older than us who knew us and who had the ability to pull Jenny aside or pull me aside and say something like, hey, <laughs> Max, what are you doing? What, what are you saying to Jenny? Like, whoa, back the truck up. They had edit ability rights with us. So if I could say anything to you today, I would wanna say this, you flourish best when you're connected to God and his people. You flourish best when you're connected to God and his people. So I'm wrapping up a three-week mini-series on flourishing. And, and in week one, I, I made the case that Americans aren't doing well. Americans are languishing. And so I asked the question, what brings you life? And last week, I suggested that, look, one size does not fit all. If you think that the way to connect to God is to get up early in the morning, read your Bible by yourself, pray by yourself, journal by yourself. And, and if that's never worked for you and you've been frustrated and thought to yourself, well, I'm just a loser Christian. I just don't love God. I wanna say to you that one size does not fit all. There are lots of ways to connect with God. There are lots of sacred pathways. God has made us with different temperaments and that's a good thing. But here's what I know, when researchers look at what distinguishes very, very happy people from very, very unhappy people, there's one thing that is substantially different. And it isn't income, it isn't health, it isn't security, it isn't physical attractiveness, it isn't IQ. The one thing that distinguishes very, very, very happy people from very, very, very unhappy people is the presence of joy-producing, life-changing relationships. As one researcher concluded, happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. So if you wanna flourish, 
You got to activate your tribe. We flourish when we are connected to God and his people. And there's a word that expresses that. It's a word that's all over the pages of scripture. And that word is love. At the core of everything that Jesus did and said was love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? There are a couple of identifiers of that kind of love. There are a couple of identifiers of the kind of love that we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the first identifier is this, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. Jesus front-loaded his relationships with love and acceptance. And it is expressed so beautifully in a story that Jesus tells about a man and his two sons. And that story is found in Luke chapter 15. When Jesus tells this story, there were some members of the Jewish religion and they were upset because Jesus was eating and dining with sinners and tax collectors, people that they felt were unacceptable. And look, everybody has groups of people that they consider unacceptable. Every culture does. And, and in Jesus' day, it, it was among the Jews, it was tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus ate with them. And so Jesus fires off three stories to correct this thinking. And the third story he tells is what we know as the story or the parable of the prodigal son. To illustrate the point further, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When the young man finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father, and I'll say this. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So the young man returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father, his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening this season. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. 
This story really should be called the story of the extravagant father. And the point that Jesus is making and telling it is that the father in this story who runs out and greets and welcomes this prodigal son, that's what God is like. And in God's kingdom, everybody's welcome. And here's what that means for you and me at Generations Community Church. We don't get to determine who's welcome and who isn't everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. The earliest followers of Jesus took this and radicalized the Roman Empire with it. In the first century Roman world, it was common practice for Roman parents to discard unwanted babies. If you had a baby that you didn't want, particularly if that baby was a girl, you'd put the baby in a clay pot, you'd take the pot to the trash heap, and there you would leave the child in the pot to die of exposure. Well, guess who roamed those trash heaps looking for kids to adopt in their own families? Yeah, you got it. Christians, followers of Jesus who had heard him say, let the little children come to me. The same Jesus who welcomed everybody, even the unwanted. These earliest Christians also did uncanny things like caring for the sick and dying when plagues would hit or social outcasts, the people that nobody else wanted, had, wanted to have anything to do with. So the first characteristic of this love that we see in Jesus Christ is that everybody's welcome. This, the second characteristic is not unlike it and that's this, anything's possible. Anything is possible. Here's what I mean by that. People who encounter Jesus are often changed as a result of it. People who encounter Jesus are often changed as a result of it. And from the pages of Acts, the book of Acts, I want to highlight just three people. The first is Simon Peter, the fisherman. You know, Simon Peter, the one who's gung-ho for Jesus, the one who during the Last Supper promises Jesus, oh, I will stick with you no matter what. I'm going to stand by your side. That same Peter who denies even knowing the Nazarene three different times later that evening. Shaky Simon becomes the rock that Jesus says he'll be. According to tradition of the church, Peter is actually crucified upside down. And his letters in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Peter, were written in the wake of the persecution under the Emperor Nero. Hard, hard times to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way as it was known at that time. And in those letters, Peter spells out what it's like and what it means to follow Jesus and to be faithful when things are hard and when you're persecuted. So this, this gung-ho, uh, inconsistent, shaky fisherman really does become a stalwart of the early church. And then, of course, there's Paul, who figures prominently in the book of Acts, a guy who is zealous and violent as a, as a younger man. Uh, he's there at the stoning of Stephen, and he holds the cloaks of people who are stoning Stephen to death. And clearly, Paul has no problem whatsoever with people paying the ultimate price for believing the wrong things. Well, that guy, that zealous, violent guy becomes 
the sacrificial apostle, the one who goes from city to city making tents and not taking a dime from anyone because he doesn't want to be living on other people's generosity. He views his ministry as a gift to others. And he says in one of his letters that his very life is like the pouring out of a sacrifice. Paul embodied sacrificial, sacrificial service. He's a changed man. And then there's Barnabas. You may not know this, but Barnabas isn't his real name. Joseph was his real name. He was a teacher in the synagogue in Cyprus, and he was taught in all likelihood by Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis of the first century. But Joseph, who later became known as Barnabas, he was wealthy. He had money. I don't know if you know what it's like to be around people with money, but they live differently. They don't just go to the beach. They go to France, okay? They don't fly coach. They fly first class. Barnabas was one of those wealthy people, and we see in the book of Acts in the early pages He sells property and lays it at the feet of the apostles to be used for distribution of resources to widows. And he is such an encourager to anyone who would follow Jesus that the church, in a sense, gives him this nickname, Barnabas. And Barnabas simply means son of encouragement. He is Mr. Encouragement. So in light of what we see, in light of the fact that you need a tribe, Okay, and what that tribe is characterized by everybody's welcome and anything's possible. Let me ask a couple of questions. Are you relationally connected to God's people right now? Look, we've come out of a rough, bumpy time and a lot of people are feeling really disconnected and there's good reason for that. But despite the bumps, despite the pandemic, are you relationally connected to God's people? And, and then who are some people, some loving people in your life and how have they given life to you because they've been such loving people? Let me suggest three ways that you and I can activate our tribe in the days ahead. First of all, create space. Create space in your calendar, create space in your home. In the early days of having a newborn kid and then a toddler, Jenny and I had another couple friend, their name was Holly and Burley. I don't know why she got top billing, but that's how it worked. And Holly was a stay-at-home mom at the time, Jenny was a stay-at-home mom at the time, and on Thursday nights, every Thursday, They would get together, they would have their toddler boys on hand, and they would make dinner together for the two husbands coming home from work. Now, I got to tell you some things about my personality, particularly back then. I like order. I want my house to be orderly. I don't like chaos. I don't like toys everywhere and anywhere. I also like when I come home from work for there to be a bit of quiet and pause for me to kind of collect myself. Okay, so those are things that I want and supposedly need. And on Thursday nights, I was coming home to two toddler boys who had taken out every toy in the house. And those toys were everywhere. The kitchen was a disaster. There was dinner, but there was chaos. 
If Jenny had pulled me aside in that moment and simply asked me, do you want to do this, Max Vanderpool? I probably would have said no. And that would have been the wrong thing to say because over the course of that season of having dinner together with them, I cultivated a tribe. Those people knew me, they loved me, they had the ability to tell me when I was being stupid. Apparently, giving up some of the things that I wanted or needed actually turned out to benefit me more in the long run. So create space. And for those of you that are introverted like me and, and don't like chaos like me, I'm just gonna tell you right now, Expect a little mess, expect a little chaos, but it's good for you. It's good for you. Secondly, invite people into it. Invite people into it. Most Americans right now are wallflowers. They're waiting for an invitation. And I'm going to tell you at Generations Community Church, the people who initiate, those are the minority. The people waiting for an invitation, they're the majority. Invite into it. Invite into it. And here's the thing, the reason that you and I should do this is because most Americans, particularly most American churchgoers, are far more relationally impoverished than they realize. And the, and the time when you usually find that out is if you, if you uh, die suddenly, and then all of a sudden it's on display as to who shows up at your funeral, and how many people show up, and what they have to say when they're there. So create space, invite into it, and lastly, take a vow of stability. Ginny and I have had all kinds of friendships and small groups and classes and tribes over the years. Some of them have been funner than others. Some of them have been more challenging than others. But in each and every one, we haven't cut and run just because we felt like it. We've stuck with it. We were in one small group once that was supposed to end after the second year and rene we renewed it three more years because somebody went through a divorce and then another couple lost a baby and then another couple lost a toddler. And so we just stuck with it, okay? Take a vow of stability. Tim Keller says this, people are messy. Therefore, relationships will be messy. Expect messiness, okay? So take a vow of stability. Don't run. When you run... When you run, what, what ends up happening is that you're running from yourself. Here's what I would ask of you. In the coming months, as things try to get back to normal, as things try and, and we do this awkward getting reacquainted stuff, take some intentional steps to activate your tribe. You need a tribe. You need that kind of relational richness that comes by being relationally connected. And there's no substitute for time and commitment. That's the only way to get there, which means it's going to appear in your calendar and it's going to come at a price. But the price, it's a, it's a, it's a price that's worth the price of admission. Gang, I believe in you guys. And I believe in your ability and capacity to love each other. And I hope and I pray that in the coming days, you will activate your tribe.